Hello and welcome to another podcast edition of Taiwan Talk, ICRT's weekly interview segment, bringing you conversations from and about Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, we are continuing our once-a-month series uh, in which we speak with Taipei Times features writer Han Chang uh, about his weekly history column, Taiwan in Time. Uh, just to refresh everyone's memory, here's uh, what we're going to be doing today. Uh, each week, Han Chang uses his column to highlight one Taiwan historical event that occurred during the following calendar week. And each month, we invite him on the show uh, to show us what he's come up with. So we have got four of those to get through, four articles, and that means four historical events, all from the month of August uh, at some point in Taiwan's history. Uh, we're going to be covering a lot of years, a lot of epochs, a lot of eras uh, through the course of this show. Uh, but I am going to get out of the way as soon as possible so that we can turn it over to the guy uh, who has actually done the research. Uh, with that in mind, here's our conversation for this month. All right, and that is uh, not just intro music for the show today. It also sets up uh, our first topic. Uh, we were listening there to Memories of an Old Love. Uh, and the writer behind that song is the subject uh, of your first article for the month of August. Uh, that one is titled The Resilience of Suppressed Tunes, uh, and that was for the calendar dates August 7th through 13th. Uh, and you were looking at uh, the life and work of one uh, Ye Chun-Lin. Yeah, yeah. I was looking at um, his work and as like a Taiwanese or like Hoklo um, musician. Um, and from him, I kind of wanted to explore how um, Taiwanese language music managed to survive through two different regimes that spoke different languages and tried to both tried to suppress the language mm. and how it kept um, kept persisting. Right. Yeah. It's 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 very interesting. You get the sense as you read the article that uh, the track of his career, the ups and downs. Uh, which you know spans uh, the fifties all the way up until the early nineties. Those are kind of the major years you looked at. Uh, they kind of track uh, how Taiwanese or Haklo, like you said right there, uh, was considered in Taiwan. You know the periods where it was more repressed under the KMT regime, the periods when it was less repressed under the KMT regime. Uh, his music career really follows that uh, very closely. Uh, so let's just start. Uh, give us a crash course uh, in Mr. Ye's career. Yeah, so uh, he was born in still during the Japanese times. So he kind of grew up, he caught the tail end of um, the Taiwanese music boom during the Japanese era. But that was soon suppressed due to the imperialism and um, the Japanization program where like all Hoklo music was banned in 1939. And then after the KMT arrived, they were trying to first they were trying to before they started implementing Mandarin, they were trying to reverse the Japanese influence. So that's when kind of Hoklo music boomed. And then this guy kind of 
started his career around then, and then um, so it's like a little bubble almost, uh, yeah. where uh, they're trying to throw out Japanese, and they haven't quite uh, decided that Taiwanese is also on the hit list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that kind of he ju- he kind of just took off from there, and then uh, but it took a while from him for him to make his big hit. Like mm-hmm. he. Kind of worked a bunch of menial jobs. He like, I think he was a street vendor, and then finally he、um, got into the music industry and then started writing songs, and then it kind of just took off from there. Yeah, and so then、uh, those those hits that you were talking about that probably would have、uh, been in the late fifties. Yeah, so his first hit came、uh, in 1957 when he released、uh, "Chou Feng Luo Ye," Autumn Wind and Fallen Leaves. And then that kind of established him as a songwriter. And then later he partnered with、uh, Hong Yifeng, which、mm. was another, which was he was a well, singer. Yeah, he was a singer, and、mm-hmm. he wrote some of the tunes while、uh, Ye like wrote all the lyrics. I see. And、um, yes, and then they had two big hits.、Uh, um, yeah, memories of an old love and the one I yearn for. Mm. So they had like those were their probably years like most famous hits as well, and those were in like the I think yeah they came out in the sixties、mm. yeah. But then okay, so moving forward a little bit as your、uh, article discusses, like I said a second ago, that was kind of a bubble period,、uh, and、uh, it burst shortly after when、uh, Taiwanese began to be repressed. Yeah, yeah, like the government had started repressing Taiwanese like as early as like. The 1940s, like、mm. when,、uh, but back then it was mostly just prohibiting it in schools and in official situations, and more of it was like promoting Mandarin as like the everyday language. But like, yeah, starting from the early 70s, they started enacting laws that limited uh, media, um, Taiwanese in the media. So they were like limiting. Um, Taiwanese songs, Taiwanese programming—not not just Taiwanese, but like just they called it like Fangyan, so any like dialect that was not、mm. Mandarin. So so Hakka. Yeah,、well. yeah, yeah.、Mm-hmm. So Mandarin was to be the main medium for for all all media, and then in 1976 they passed another stricter law that limited,、um, yeah, like. Taiwanese programming to just one hour per day, and they could only play two songs. I think one in the morning and one in the afternoon,、mm. and that was it. So,、um, so all the Taiwanese singers had to find other venues. Like a lot of them relied on like live performances and、um, smaller venues or uh, um, like temples、mm. and like different festivals and performing there. And they still had a following, but it was.、Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah, not having the media exposure in that era was、um, still a big blow. So,、mm-hmm. so he did kind of take a break after 1976, but、um, that actually turned into another career because he started traveling around Taiwan and then he wrote his、uh, sketches of Taiwan series.、Mm, yeah, tell us about that. So, I mean, clearly,、uh, yeah, is a guy who is. Uh, like many here in Taiwan, very taken with the beauty of the island,、uh, and that was really the 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 focus of his work for the last、uh, decade and a half or so of his life. Yeah, yeah, because、uh, presumably、uh, there was a lot of censorship too, so you couldn't write about sensitive topics. So、mm. that's why a lot of the songs were just about everyday life or love, 
And uh, but he decided to kind of just take a tour of Taiwan and just visit all the beautiful places. And so he started writing all these songs about Taiwan and like bathing in the hot springs at Jiaoshi by the sea. And very specific, yeah, the boat song of Sun Moon Lake. So、mm-hmm. he wrote fourteen sketches during this period.、Mm-hmm. And then even after martial law was lifted and all the restrictions were gone, he continued this series, and he wrote like. He wrote twenty two more,、mm. and then、uh, the interesting thing is he had never been to Penghu,、mm-hmm. but、uh, he was he was too sick to go because he had、uh, lung problems from a lifetime of smoking,、mm. and、uh, so but he insisted on writing the song. So he actually had his children bring him like books on Penghu, and he looked at the pictures and. Read the descriptions and then wrote his final thirty-six song.、Mm. Yeah, and then and then he died. Right. Yeah. So I mean, even up to the very end, he was keeping his his focus on、uh, kind of elevating the very local and、uh, what's、uh, special in particular about Taiwan.、Mm-hmm. Uh, now, one of the great ironies,、uh, as you pointed out in his life, is the fact that、uh, only a little bit more than ten years after. Uh, some of those restrictions took him off the air in Taiwan.、Uh, he received a lifetime achievement award from some of those zer- very same officials,、uh, some of those very、uh, same government bodies、uh, that put those restrictions in place. Yeah, that's correct.、Um, he won the lifetime contribution award in that at the 1994 Golden Melody Awards. And yeah, the irony is this award ceremony was organized by the Government Information Office,、mm. which was the institution that. Enacted all the restrictions on Taiwanese music, like just、uh, about a decade or two、mm-hmm. earlier.、So、yeah, that's the pretty ironic part. Like how just the lifting of martial law can completely reverse the government's、uh, policies. Yeah, absolutely.、Uh, but I mean, that being said, so、uh, of course. Taiwan has gone through a very、uh, speedy reversal over the last twenty years or so in the attitudes towards Taiwanese,、uh, in the attitudes,、uh, and, and we see this in a lot of the debates that we're having now over history, and we talk about that a lot on the show、uh, on you know sort of the attitudes of what kind of history is、uh, emphasized here, and、uh, whether we often it's referred to as a Taiwanization of Taiwan,、uh, but at the same time, I mean,、uh, maybe I could get your perspective of,、uh, on this. You're probably more hooked into it than I am.、Mm-hmm. It does still seem to be the case that、uh, the Taiwanese language、uh, is not as much of a, a part of pop culture as it was a generation or two ago. It still seems like,、uh, at least for people in the、uh, under forty group, connect more with、uh, Mandarin music for the most part. Yeah, I think it's still like throughout the years, Mandarin has become become the mainstream, and it's like.、Um Yeah, I think Mandarin Mandarin pop has greatly super, like superseded Taiwanese pop, and for is a long is, time. And Taiwanese pop is mostly associated with like you know like taxi drivers or like older people, right? But there's also new Taiwanese music that's coming out. Like、uh, there's a lot of Taiwanese hip hop、mm. that's going on, and a lot of、uh, bands tend to sing in Taiwanese. So I think there's like a certain degree of revival going on, and.、Mm. Uh, People are taking more interest in their roots, and、um, and not just Taiwanese. Like Aboriginals are starting to sing in their own language, and there's like Hakas are trying to sing in their own language as well. So 
I think it's there's been a, like a new revival of this uh, of using your your like ancestral language. Mm. In spite of Mandarin still being your main language, you want to、mm -hmm. write songs or express yourself in the language that maybe you identify with, and、um, and just just in different forms. Like it's not the old songs、mm. or the old Taiwanese pop. It's more like using it in like、uh, yeah. Recently, I heard like a death metal band that sang in Taiwanese. So、mm -hmm. yeah, I think things are、um, starting to pick up again. All right. So that's probably a trajectory that we can expect.、Uh, you know, just in terms of pluralism and and diversity and getting in touch with、uh, the roots of、uh, many cultures that call Taiwan home.、Um, most likely a trajectory that we can expect over the years to come. Uh, we are going to round out、uh, this first segment, though, and、uh, to take us to the second segment,、uh, we're actually、uh, going to rely today、uh, very heavily on Mr. Ye's music.、Uh, in between each story,、uh, we're going to let him play us through. So,、uh, this first little bridge that we're hearing、uh, right here is another song of Mr. Ye's,、uh, and this one is "The One I Yearn For." <laughs> All right, and、uh, just to keep things ch 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 chugging along, we are now going to talk about your second article for the month of August.、Uh, this one, kind of taking a look at the very early years of Taiwan's railway system、uh, and events that took uh, place uh, between August 14th and August 20th. Now we are taking a very expansive look at, at Taiwan's railways, but、uh, you kind of you kind of start things off talking about、uh, the first、uh, Zhejiang class express train,、uh, which started rolling along on August fifteenth, nineteen seventy eight. But we're just using those tracks to kind of traverse the rail of history,、uh, actually all the way back to the nineteenth century,、uh, where you say、uh, really that's where. Uh, Taiwan's rail system got started first,、uh, was developed,、uh, and you take a look at this in your article, "The Two Fathers of Taiwan's Railroads."、Uh, very interesting、uh, because you say you know one of those fathers、uh, is still recognized today,、uh, the other not so much. So let's start with the first one. Who is the first father of Taiwan's railroads?、Um, the first father of Taiwan railroads is、uh, Liu Mingchuan. Um, he was the first governor of Taiwan under the Qing Dynasty. Like right after the Qing Dynasty decided to separate Taiwan from Fujian and make it its own province, and Liu,、uh, besides the railway, he actually did a lot of modernization programs. But、um, the railroad was probably the biggest one because、uh, they had tried to build a railroad like back even in 1877, but that never materialized. And then in 1887, he Sent like a petition to the government saying that I want to build a railroad in Taiwan, and they approved it. So he kind of started right away. So they started from like the Dadaocheng area, and then they actually spent like three years like building a tunnel to Jilong, and then connecting it. And then、um, yeah, this railroad by the time it was like it stopped construction in nineteen eighteen ninety four, it stretched from Jilong all the way to Xinzhou. Mm. Right, and so 
there we're we're, we're looking at a kind of a rudimentary attempt uh, to make a railroad system, and 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 uh, I, I don't I don't want to dump on it too much, but they face some pretty big challenges. Yeah, they did. They did. A lot of people died, and um, it often didn't work. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but uh, they they did make it. They did get it up and running. Right. So that was Taiwan's first railroad. Right. And so you, Liu Mingchuan, uh, he did not serve uh, for a terribly long time. And as soon as he was out of office, uh, basically the the new governor that came to town wasn't as interested in this sort of modernization. Yeah, yeah. The next guy, Shao Yulian, he came in uh, 1891. And he, yeah, he just gradually stopped all Liu's modernization programs. And so the railroad just kind of stopped in Xinzhou mm. in 1894. But it didn't really matter because... The Qing would lose Taiwan to Japan just, just a, year, a later. year later. Yeah, right. And so uh, the Japanese come to town in 1895, uh, and then for years uh, the railroad just kind of is a rusting hulk that is not being used very much. Yeah, yeah. When they got there, it was in pretty bad shape, and mm-hmm. uh, and also before the Qing retreated, like a lot of the troops, like. Uh, sabotaged the railroads. So. Mm-hmm. The retreating Qing troops. Yeah. Yeah. So they had a lot to. They had a lot of work to do, but um, they did get it up and running. And the they, Japanese did, yeah. Yeah, and they kind of uprooted some of the sections. But um, and yeah, actually, the ironic part was uh, the railroad was built to protect Taiwan, but then it was used by the Japanese to um, send supplies and transport supplies on its push south um, to conquer the rest of Taiwan. Whoops, a daisy. <laughs> uh, that can happen. Yeah, that happens. All right. Well, uh, that all makes uh, way for... Okay, so the Japanese are here. uh, The railroad is in ill repair. uh, And the stage is set for uh, what I think you would call uh, the second father of Taiwan's railroad system. Yeah, yeah. So finally, for the first few years, they... uh, For the first probably four years of Japanese rule, they spent uh, trying to fix this railroad. And then finally, they're like, oh, "Okay, this is not working." So they actually built a new Taipei to Jilong tunnel. They actually, I mean, that was the saddest part of your article, in my opinion. Was they spent three years making this tunnel? Yeah. And then the Japanese showed up and they said, "Nah, we don't even want to use that," and they made their own. Yeah, yeah. They found it like I think they found it too steep, mm-hmm. and uh, it was kind of uneven on all sides. So they were like, "Oh, let's let's dig our own tunnel." Picky, so, picky, picky. Yeah. So they started from there, and then in 1899, they decided to build a line all the way to Kaohsiung, which mm. was called Takao by, the, uh, by then. So, mm. yeah, and then this guy, Kinsuke uh, Hasegawa, mm-hmm. he was um, like a railroad technician in Japan, and in 1899, he arrived as the project's chief engineer. So he is the guy that we uh, might call the second father of Taiwan's railroads. Yeah. And the funny thing is I had no idea about this guy until I Googled father of Taiwan railroad. And, uh, of course, Liu Mingchuan's name showed up. But then this guy also appeared in a couple of articles. Mm. So kind of got curious. I'm like, who is this dude? Like, why haven't I heard of him? So I did some research and then found out, yeah, he's the chief engineer of the project. So he was the one that completed the western line Mm. and he kind of just 
uprooted Liu's entire railroad and wah, wah. redid the entire thing. So that's why I think that's why some people consider him as the mm-hmm. father of, I guess, Taiwan's current railroad. Mm-hmm. And like Liu was the one who started both the first railroad, but that didn't last. Right. And 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 and, and then in your article, I, well, I think that the case that you were making was uh, that. You know, of course, Leo started this grand project. He had this vision of connecting all of Taiwan uh, with a railway system. He wasn't in office long enough to see it through. Uh, but then, you know, Hasegawa comes to town, and uh, even though he didn't really use a lot of Leo's original work, uh, he is sort of the one who completed that vision. He was the the first guy to complete a railway network uh, for all of Taiwan. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's um, yep. At twenty years after. Liu, he, yeah, it took uh, Hasegawa completed his vision pretty much, and in addition, he also worked on like other lines. He did the Danshui line and like mm-hmm. other railroad depots and stuff like that. But um, yeah, and but he never stayed in Taiwan. Like right after the railroad was complete in 1908, he went back to Japan as well. Mm. How would you say? I mean, you've uh, obviously you, you you were saying a second ago that. Uh, you weren't even aware of uh, this Japanese engineer, so that kind of tells you a little bit of something about how the history is dealt with in Taiwan. Uh, but you've dug into it even further, uh, just based on uh, you know the historical works that you read preparing for this. How do historians deal with uh, this history? Do they see, do they kind of reflect those mixed emotions? Do they uh, mostly uh, look down on the Japanese period? How, how do Taiwanese historians uh, tend to deal with this? Like during um, probably in the early earlier, like when martial law was still in effect, you probably wouldn't talk about their accomplishments. Mm-hmm. But if you look at recent books, they do acknowledge the Japanese as like building a lot of these things. And mm-hmm. but yeah, but they don't really mention like um, specific people or mm. like Hasegawa or like people like that. They just kind of. Give an overview of um, how the railroad was developed. And, mm. Yeah. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't, you know, kind of prop up individuals to like this is a person worthy of esteem, worthy of uh, historical remembrance. Yeah, yeah. Like the only places where I really saw him being mentioned were kind of unofficial sources like Wikipedia mm. or like blogs or mm. uh, yeah, nothing, nothing really official. But mm-hmm. I mean, that's where I got the idea and then Mm. I just kind of ran with it and decided to investigate this guy a little bit more. All right, and uh, we're moving on now to uh, a story that comes from the third week in August. This is your third article for August in this series. And I think uh, I think this one is uh, uh, really a story that's going to break some listeners' hearts. Uh, listeners will see why in just a second. Uh, the name here is uh, the legend of the red leaf in question. Okay, you're throwing this legend into question. Uh, the story that we're talking about here is uh, of 
a junior baseball team uh, that won against Japan on August 25th, 1968. A stunning accomplishment that they pulled off, uh, and you were just dumping all over that legacy, throwing it into question, uh, finding some of the inconsistencies there. Uh, so uh, we're going to let you do that in a second, but uh, just like you did in your article, let's let's set up the legend itself. What is the legend of the Red Leaf? Um, the legend of the Le- Red Leaf. So this is a team from this like tiny school in um, Taidong, and um, in this village called Hongye. So that's the Red Leaf, and. Um, so they kind of they they only had like a hundred something students and five staff members, and they were able to um, they put together like a baseball team. And legend has it that they practice with like sticks as bats and stones as balls. And um, they just were really poor, but they started having quite a bit of success in the '60s, and then. Um, yeah, in '68, in March of 1968, they won. Uh, the Chomao Bay in Tainan. And yeah, they, they won the championship. But then there was another national championship in Taipei and they didn't have money to go. Mm. So they kind of announced that they were not going. And then this story became widely publicized by the media. So donations started coming in and they were able to go to Taipei and they won the championship there. Mm. And then that earned them a chance to play with... Um, um, a Japanese team, like a mm-hmm. Japanese kind of all-star youth team from that was visiting that summer. And up to this point, it said that no Taiwanese team had ever beaten a Japanese Little League team before. Mm. And they did it on August 25th. As the, and the crowd started throwing money into the <laughs> uh, field despite police asking them to stop. And they were excited. Yeah, they were excited. And then this became like a huge sensation. Like uh, Zhang Jingguo, who was like the uh, minister of defense then um, and future president, met with them. And then the Department of Education gave them like 10,000 NT to buy equipment. And yeah, so and that pretty much ignited like the baseball craze in Taiwan because the 70s was the glory years of mm-hmm. Taiwanese baseball when they won like a ton of World Series. And also, I mean, even more broadly is uh, part of why baseball really is the national sport of Taiwan today. Yeah, yeah. It all started from there. And um, that was when like people not even interested in baseball started watching baseball and they were glued to their TVs and mm-hmm. or uh, just a number of people who showed up at the event. Um, like uh, it's said that up to like 20,000 people showed up to watch that match, which, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and that kind of just like things started from there. Mm. So. Right. Okay. So that is the legend. Uh, we start with, you know, little kids hitting rock balls with sticks they go on to uh, beat the unbeatable Japanese team. What is, uh, what's wrong with that? Why, why would you want to take that away from us? That's a wonderful story. Well, first I want to say I'm not the only one trying to take this away. <laughs> um, I started, um, like, I started looking into it because there were so many doubters on the internet. And uh, I was like, why, why, why is everybody talking smack about this beautiful story? So... Mm-hmm. So I couldn't just let it go like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I had to look into it. <laughs> <laughs> you had, had to look had into to. it. I just had you to. You had to. Yep. 
So I looked into it, and then I found that. Um, so there, there's this uh, Taiwanese baseball news article database that I looked through, mm. and so I was looking at old articles, and um, most of them are uh, United Daily News articles from the '60s. But uh, so I looked into that, and I found a couple. Um, there's one curious one um, on June, like in late June 1968, where um, there were like a bunch of fans that reported to the Ministry of Education and the National Baseball Association that this team was using uh, older players to play under the uh, um, play, to play under fake names as uh, as current students. And that's mm. how they won the world's uh, national championship in Taipei. Stacking the deck a little bit. Yep. But uh, they denied the claims and the association concluded that there wasn't enough evidence. And um, so, and they also said, like, why are you bringing this up a month later? Why didn't you, if you noticed it then? So they were kind of, they, they kind of just like covered the incident. And, um, All right. So case closed. <laughs> we can walk away. The story's fine. We're done. Yep. yep. Nothing to see Everything's here. Everything's still happy. And then... Uh, Wait, and then? And then what? No, and then. Yeah, there is and then. Oh, no. And then things were fine until another article showed up a year later, April 26, 1969, when mm. uh, the principal, the News reports said they they have falsified the age of like uh, several players and also used some players that weren't part of the school, uh-huh. and um, and then they said uh, they were going to try to appeal the sentence. I mean, they were they were sentenced but to jail, but they were given probation, so they didn't really go to jail. But um, that sounds pretty definitive, though. Yep, that sounds pretty definitive. And then they said they were going to appeal, and then I. Didn't really find anything after that. So, uh, but um, so that, that that's kind of why a lot of people doubt this legend, even though it did provide a boost for like national spirit and uh, did like it, it's still important in the role it played in history. But but if they had enough evidence to say that this guy probably forged documents, if they had enough to convict him. That at least throws quite a bit of suspicion. On. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, so that that kind of puts a damper on things. Like, even though it, it given its, its, its historical significance. But like you said, like you said, there's there's no denying 1970s glory years. Yeah, glory years takes nothing away from that. Nope, takes nothing away from that. So, I mean, is this? Uh, this, this, you know, the 1968, that particular win, is that something that people in Taiwan remember to this day? Like baseball fans still look back to that uh, very specific event? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think uh, they just celebrated the 40th anniversary of it in 2008. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's still celebrated. And then, but every time it's celebrated, the the skeptics come out and say like, mm-hmm. "Hey, this happened." But but the, legend, the skeptics like Han Chung, yep, like me. But mm. um, yeah, but despite all the debate, like I, it, it can this legend continues to persist and continues to be important in people's hearts. I think it was just such a heartwarming story mm. that it was. It, it's hard to take away from it. 
Well, you know, if if, if the heartwarming story is enough to put you on a ten uh, a decade winning streak, is it really so bad? Even if it's a lie, maybe it's worth it. I don't know. It's maybe hard to it say. Is. Maybe it is. It's hard to say. But it it is kind of interesting. I mean, baseball in general in Taiwan. Of course, it's been on much more of an even keel uh, for the last you know decade or so. But before that, it has been. Uh, a very scandal-plagued, the, the major leagues in Taiwan, the Chinese Professional Baseball League, uh, has been scandal-plagued uh, since it began in the late 80s. Uh, and, uh, of course, a number of teams have been shut down over uh, uh, gambling scandals. So, I mean, this very early event, you know, it may be something that we want to forget, but this aspect of the sport has always been around, and maybe this just set the tone. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting, because, like, yeah, I, I remember go, like watching all the scandals on, on TV and all that stuff, and then, and then looking back, you're like, even from the very beginning, there's been this sport has been hit with scandals. Makes a certain amount of sense. Yeah, yeah, and so it's still going on. <laughs> Real quick, before we get to the final segment for today, I just want to point out a little mistake that I'm actually just about to make. Uh, Did not catch it until after the recording was over. Too hard to edit out, so uh, I'm going to point it out right here. There is going to be a moment in the conversation where I refer to a Republic of China when I meant to say the Republic of Formosa. Of course, two very distinct entities. Uh, Republic of China is the government that we uh, currently live under. Uh, Right now, today, Republic of Formosa... Not so much, uh, as we'll hear in just a second. So uh, I'll even give a little sound cue to point out where I made that mistake. So uh, listen for that uh, and heap all appropriate shame upon me. Uh, because, you know, very different things that we're talking about here. But without any uh, further ado, uh, let's get to that final segment here on this week's show. Here it goes. Right, and we are coming up now on uh, your final article for August. This is your fourth article for the fourth week of August, uh, covering the time between August 28th, September 3rd. Uh, came out actually just this last weekend uh, on the Sunday edition of the Taipei Times, so folks can find it there. Uh, and they're going to want to look for the article entitled The Battle of Bagua Shan. Uh, and very interestingly here, this is kind of actually picking up on a story that we left uh, two months ago on this segment, uh, sort of looking at the uh, relatively bloody uh, conquest of Taiwan by Japanese forces. We left this story uh, with the fall of Taipei uh, and then uh, two of uh, Taiwan's military leaders kind of uh, fleeing to uh, China. You pick up the story here uh, as the Japanese forces continue uh, to advance, uh, and even after those two leaders flee, uh, it continue. There, 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 there's some continuing drama there. Yeah, yeah. So for this one, last time I talked about the people who ran away. So mm-hmm. this time I want the heroes to, who ran away. Yeah, we called them heroes. Yeah, the heroes who ran away. And then this time I wanted to look at the people who actually fought to the death. <laughs> so it's <laughs> a good way to frame it. Yeah, and uh, August 28th happened to be the Battle of Baguashan. So in uh, Baguashan is located in Zhanghua, just south of the Dadu River. Mm. And uh, it's um, that was the biggest and decisive battle mm-hmm. of the entire Japanese conquest. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I decided to kind of look into like what led up to that and 
how, what what happened after the leaders ran away? Like um, right. how um, the remaining resistance? Remaining resistance, right. yeah. Because you still had Liu Yongfu; he was still there, mm-hmm. but he was in Tainan, mm-hmm. and he really didn't do much. He sent an army up to help in Miaoli and Zhanghua and that. But uh, right, and before yeah. we go too much further, let's just provide a little bit more of the background. Mm-hmm. So, of course. Uh, this battle begins on August 28th, 1895. Uh, that is uh, the year that uh, Japan conquered all of Taiwan. Um, and so you're talking about Liu Yongfu right there. Uh, tell us about him. He, he, he is still the leader of the very short-lived Republic of China. Uh, he, the forces that he uh, is leading is known as uh, the Black Flag Army. So he kind of uh, inherits this uh, very short-lived entity um, that those other leaders we talked about a second ago ran away from. Yeah, so they they declared like kind of they established the Republic of Formosa like when uh, the Qing signed uh, ceded Taiwan to Japan, and but yeah, af- after Jilong fell, the president ran away. After Taipei fell, the vice president ran away. So uh, Liu Yongfu was their kind of big military commander. Uh, he was originally from China and. Um, um, he made a name for himself in the war against the French, so he was sent to defend Taiwan. And so, but he was defending; he was in, uh, responsible for Tainan. So, uh, mm. but um, with the two, the president and vice president gone, um, the people of Tainan actually invited him and kind of asked him to be the de facto leader of mm. what was remaining of the republic. Mm-hmm. And, so that was his position. Right. Okay. So that's kind of the backstory there on uh, Liu Yongfu. Uh, but as you said just a second ago, he's pretty far south. He's down in Tainan. Uh, and before the Japanese get to him, before we get to the Battle of Bagua Shan, those advancing Japanese forces have to deal uh, with three uh, other military leaders that kind of have raised uh, their own militias that are totally uh, separate and apart from the military that he's leading. So we're seeing kind of this patchwork force that's thrown together uh, as, you know, very in the heat of the moment as the Japanese forces are advancing. Yeah, so these are, uh, they're all, all three of them are Hakas because they, they were, they were living in uh the Xingzhu, they're all they're all from the Xingzhu and Miaoli area, which was like right directly south of Taipei and Taoyuan, and uh, so their homeland was being threatened first. So Wu Tangxing was the first one to say like, "Okay, I'm going to raise this army and we're going to fight the Japanese to the death." And later he was joined by uh, Zhang Saozhu and then Xu Xiang. And uh, since all three of them were like, they passed like the imperial examination, so they were kind of called like the three Hakka scholars, or some called them the three Hakka musketeers. And mm. so they put together this like kind of patchwork militia of like um, just untrained, uh, just country people who right. wanted to. This is the farmer down the road. This yeah. is the guy who sells, you know, boiled yams. Yeah, yeah. But they were all determined to like defend. Their homeland, right, and uh, just you know, kind of getting back to uh, what you were mentioning a second ago, what these guys were missing, perhaps in military preparedness, uh, they made up for in real dedication. This wasn't this, you know, we we often I think we often forget about this very short period in Taiwan's history, but there was a real resistance in place. Yeah, there was, there was, because your your very homeland is being threatened mm-hmm. uh, by this foreign power. So the natural thing to do is to fight like you wouldn't just like 
let them take over. And、uh, even though the Japanese, their equipment, their artillery, everything was superior, they still tried to. Um, they still tried to defend their homeland, but they were they kept being pushed south, and、um, mm. yeah, and they started in northern Xinzhou,、mm-hmm. and then they quickly lost that, and then they lost Xinzhou, and then Jiang died first. He was trying to; they were trying to retake Xinzhou, and he was captured by the Japanese, and he committed、mm-hmm. suicide.、Mm. And、um, yeah, they say he was no more than twenty years old at that time, and then so the battle. Kept going south, and then by that time, Liu Yongfu finally sent someone to help them.、Mm. So they sent、uh, Wu Pengnian,、mm-hmm. who was、uh, who seemed like a pretty brave person. He wasn't from Taiwan; he had no ties to Taiwan. But he also he decided this is where he's going to、yeah, make a stand. He decided that's where he was going to make a stand. So he he joined Wu Tangxing's army in the, in around Miaoli, and they kind of fought、mm. together, and then. Um, kept being pushed south, and then so this kind of sets the scene for the Baguashan battle because、mm. uh, the Japanese finally take Taichung,、mm-hmm. and so the resistance moves south of the Dadu River、mm-hmm. while the Japanese reach the north bank, and、mm-hmm. then they kind of stall there for a couple of days. There's some minor skirmishes, there's some scouting, and then、um, on the night of August 27th, the Japanese split into two camps and the Left one,、uh, the right one diverts the resistance attention by building campfires, firing cannons, and then the left one secretly crosses the river. Right, and this is where we really see kind of the superior, more professional tactics of、uh, the the Japanese military. Yeah, yeah, and、uh, Baguashan is a battery, so they、mm-hmm. they were able to like fire cannons at the Japanese, but the、mm-hmm. Japanese soon like took the battery and.、Mm-hmm. Uh, Wu Tangxing was、uh, shot and killed there,、mm. and then、uh, and we're talking here about、uh, three to five thousand troops、yeah. that are made up of all of these patchwork forces, and also kind of the remnants of、uh, the 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 soldiers from the Qing army. Yeah, yeah, because、uh, yeah, so the remnants of the Qing, the Black Flag Army, the Hakka, whatever was left of the Hakka militias,、mm. and yeah, so it was just a.、Uh, Different different groups were, and、uh, it was the Hakas that were mostly guarding Baguashan, while、mm-hmm. the Black Flag was waiting on the southern bank of the Dadu River for the、um, army to come over. And they were, and then there was another contingent that was defending Zhanghua City, which was about like a kilometer away from Baguashan.、Mm. And so, basically, the bottom line is: if you kind of lost track amid all the names and the places there,、uh, the bottom line is this was really the last stand, Baguashan. After this fa- falls, Zhanghua also falls very quickly. Yeah, and that's that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. Like、uh, there were there were there were still some trouble. Like the Japanese were suffering from all kinds of diseases. Like and、um, so that stalled them for a little bit. And then there was an, like some. There were still some pretty valiant resistance efforts, but nothing as big, nothing、mm-hmm. as large scale. Like the main forces of the resistance had been decimated, and then, yeah, and then they were able to keep pushing south. And then finally, after they took Tainan, it was over. And then Liu Yongfu, as we mentioned two months ago, he fled to China as well.、Mm. And、um, yeah, and it's also worth mentioning that Wu Pengnian, his Black Flag Army commander, he. Um, after Baguashan fell, he legend has it that he saw the Japanese flag on top of the mountain. So he decided to charge there and reclaim it, and、mm. then he died in battle. 
Mm. So yeah, so this guy, he just ended up. He's never been to Taiwan before, and he ended up fighting to death for the Taiwanese. If we're looking for a through line once again this month, and I think that we are, I think that it's uh, good to find the common thread. Uh, I think in this case, uh, it could uh, very plainly be said, uh, kind of some ambivalent feelings uh, about the Japanese colonial period, uh, and we can see that I probably most clearly uh, in your articles concerning, uh, you know, first uh, the development of a train network here in Taiwan, uh, but then also. Uh, as we heard in that last article, you know, very real, uh, very bloody conflict uh, that uh, occurred uh, during the conquest of Taiwan, uh, and so those two kinds of sides of uh, Japanese colonialism uh, are, are very real and give rise to some very ambivalent feelings uh, towards uh, that entire period. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting to look at because uh, the Japanese did. Um, ruled Taiwan for 50 years, and I mean, they did build a lot of things. They built a lot of the current infrastructure, and a lot of people say, like, compared to what the KMT did when they came, first came, they were just using it as a base to reclaim China, and they didn't really start doing much until a couple of decades later. But at the same time, like the Taiwanese people were colonized; they were discriminated against. And as we look at in the Baguashan battle, like there was a lot of bloodshed. In the beginning, so it wasn't all good, and but a lot. So there, but but they did also do a lot in in terms of like developing the um, developing Taiwan and like um, stuff like that. So I think there's uh, some mixed feelings, and a lot of people like they had some grandmother who speak uh, speaks Japanese and grew up under Japanese rule, and maybe they suffered under like during two two eight. So um, it's it's hard to define like what um, I think a lot of it depends on like your background and mm. like your, your ancestry whether you came your family was here during Japanese rule or you came after Japanese rule and the Japanese tried to suppress uh, Taiwanese music mm-hmm. but so did the KMT right so um, yeah yeah even there we see that thread kind of continuing right right so. I don't know. I think it's. Um, I mean, it's never a good thing to be colonized, but right. like how but, you actually like feel about it, or right. like you know, it, it depends how you look at it. Yeah, and, and this just kind of gets to how how difficult it is to discuss uh, Taiwan history, even if we look to you know former President Lee Dong Hui. Mm-hmm. He recently said, I, I, don't, I don't, I think it was last year that he said that he, you know, when he was uh, very young, he was a Japanese citizen, and that's how he understood himself, and he fought uh, in the Japanese army, and right. that caused a huge uproar here in Taiwan because that's a rather indelicate thing to say for uh, many people who think of themselves as uh, having been persecuted by Japan. Uh, you know, not just here in Taiwan, but you know specifically. 
particularly people from China who uh, obviously have a very bitter memory of uh, World War II and the treatment of uh, civilians during that war. So it, it, it's a huge tangle. And uh, I think, as you said, it all has to do with the very specific historical memory that you probably have from the people closest in your life, you know, your family, uh, what, what, what they went through during all these periods. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's probably what it is, because like, given, like, uh, I actually looked at, um, yeah, a lot of the Japanization programs that they did mm-hmm. back then, and, you know, a lot of people, they did identify They kind of bought into it. Yeah, they did buy into it, and so it, it's hard to say, like, mm. what... Um, whether you're being forced to speak Japanese or being forced to speak Mandarin, or mm-hmm. like it's it's, I mean, like history is just written by the victors, so it's kind of like, but you still have to look into. I mean, each case is different. You mm. just have to look into people's like individual memories and individual like families and what they identify with. Right, Han Chung. Uh, well, we have covered uh, an awful lot of history today. Uh, we've made it through more than a century uh, on uh, four very different topics. So uh, I think we can pat ourselves on the back for that, or at least you can, because you're the one who did all the work. Uh, and we'll have to wrap it up right there. Once again, we have been speaking to Han Chung, who is a Taipei Times features writer, about his weekly column, Taiwan in Time, which you can find in the Sunday edition uh, each week of uh, the Taipei Times. Han Chang, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Thanks for listening to another podcast edition of Taiwan Talk. Taiwan Talk, of course, broadcasts every Monday at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. right after the top of the hour newscasts. Uh, look for that on ICRT FM 100. That's where you can find the broadcast version of the show. You can also find an extended version of the show on our podcast, such as the one you just heard right here. Uh, look for that on the ICRT website, uh, on iTunes, the ICRT blog. It's occasionally there. Uh, in most any place where uh, you might expect to find a podcast such as this. Uh, We're going to have to write out the show right there, but uh, if you do want to learn more about any of the topics, pop on over to the ICRT blog where I've made a little post uh, about today's show that has links to all of Han's articles for the month of August. So it just makes it a little bit easier to find them right there. All very interesting, worth your time. Uh, one last thing, of course, uh, playing behind me right now is uh, the music from Mr. Ye Chun-lin, who we discussed earlier in the show. Uh, and singing this song, we should mention, is uh, Hong Yifeng, who is, uh, as we said, uh, one of Mr. Ye's important collaborators. Uh, so this, of course, is Memories of an Old Love. That was the first song we heard today, and we're going to let it play us out right now. Uh, we also heard a number of other songs, including The One I Yearn For, uh, a couple of songs without English translations, uh, so I'll just say the Chinese right here, Bao Dao Man Po, Dan Shui Mu Se, and Gu Xiang Xiao Gu Niang would be the three others uh, that we heard in the program. Uh, but as I said, we are coming up on the end of the show right here, so we're going to leave it in the capable hands of Mr. Hong Feng to sing us out. For ICRT and Taiwan Talk, and I guess Han Chung, on behalf of Han Chung as well, thank you all for listening. I'm Keith Manconi. See you next time. 
想你，目屎流。